Welcome back to the conversation. I am joined now by top Democratic strategist Crystal Knight, who is an advocate for DC statehood. Crystal, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, thank you for having me. So I think most of the people, it's great to have you here. So I think most of the people that are gonna be watching this are probably already in agreement that DC mm-hmm. ought to be made a state. You know, they, they vaguely understand that this is a ridiculous colonial practice. What is going on? Let's just hurry up and do this. So let's 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 get into some of the details about you know what it's gonna to take to actually make it happen and what the actual kind of day-to-day consequences are for district residents. And you made an interesting point recently that when the COVID relief package was was implemented, that the district suffered for its lack of statehood. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure, so just before we get into the COVID relief package, I wanna just say at the outset that um, the approval for DC statehood has 54% nationwide approval. So Americans across the country already agree that DC residents, which is, you know, which makes up 71,000 residents, they should have, we should have statehood. And so knowing that it has a national um, approval rating is very, very helpful mm-hmm. when we're thinking about HR1 being passed. As it relates to COVID, because we are not a state, um, we don't receive the same benefits that regular states or traditional states may get. So that may mean funding, that may mean things like vaccines. Um, if you've seen the, the latest um, numbers, DC is not doing well with COVID vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And so the question may be, well, why is that? If this is the nation's capital, many of our elected officials come in throughout here, week in and week out. Why are we doing so poorly with COVID vaccinations? Well, states have priority in receiving vaccinations because they have jurisdiction over their affairs. DC still has to run many of our laws, many of the things that we do through the federal government. And so that's one of the small nuances why we should have our own um, um, you know, elected body that we can govern over it. And we don't have to call on Big Brother or the federal government, if you will. And so let's talk about a couple of the the constitutional obstacles that are thrown up by opponents in front of it. First of all, people say, well, look, the Constitution says that DC has to be 10 by 10. Okay, yes, Virginia was allowed to leave, but that was never actually challenged in the Supreme Court. And perhaps if it had been, the Supreme Court would have said, well, you can't do that. Take that piece of Northern Virginia and stick it back in in Washington, D.C. Why doesn't that fly? Well, it doesn't fly because Maryland has already given the city land and Marylanders have already stated, they, they voted in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, that they did not want any land in DC to go back into their state. So because we've already been given land, land has already been willed, if you will, into the city, that that argument doesn't fly. We've seen land be redistributed and given back into the city. And so that's just an argument that people who are against statehood are making, but it really won't hold up to, to water. No, that's right. And the Constitution also says that this that this, the district can't be more than a mile square. It doesn't say it can't be less. And to the point of it being less, you know, of several years ago, 
the the district was given electoral college votes in the presidential election. And so what opponents of statehood say now is that, well, that wouldn't be fair because now DC would have double the number of electoral college votes because it's three electors are right now in the constitution and they would remain in the constitution. So what do you do about that situation? Well, really what the opponents of DC statehood are really saying is they don't want more democratic electors, they don't want more democratic votes. So I think we should really name a thing a thing. And so there there's some, you know, tricky um, language around the electors, what's already established here in the district. But really this fight is about adding more democratic votes to Congress, adding more democratic votes to the Senate. And that's ultimately when when I hear the language like that, we don't want to add more, there's already things that exist. It's really around a political fight, a party line. And I think that we should just be honest in the conversation and say that. Okay, so Crystal, walk me through what this would look like. My understanding is that there would still be a district, but the lines would go around with the White House, Congress, maybe the Supreme Court or a couple federal buildings. And then the rest of it would be the state of DC or state of Columbia. Is is that more or less what people are thinking? Because there would still be a tiny sliver of a district, right? That is correct, so basically, once statehood happens, the capital and the land immediately around the capital and the White House will remain federal land. And then the state would be actually, I think the, the proposed name right now is Washington Douglas State. So again, that's a proposal, you know, pending everything being passed. And it would not exceed 10 miles in radius, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And so you're right that there would be a, a slither of a, a carve out literally from the Capitol down to the White House. So the National Mall, the monuments that are lining the mall would still remain federal land. Mm-hmm. And so how do they, how, how, I'm just trying to think through this. How, how would they deal with the, the fact that the technically according to the, Congress, the, the Constitution, the Capitol and that t- tiny sliver would still have a three electoral college votes. Like if, if Trump were in the White House and he were the only resident, like he and his family, you know, could vote in Washington D.C. and win win Washington D.C. and get three electoral college votes out of it. Is that just something that the country would be stuck with until they amended the Constitution? And maybe once you make it a state, then people are like, all right, fine, it's a state. Let's amend the Constitution and fix this. Right, I think that's that's the thinking. I think so. There's a um, there's a, a organization that's been established to really look at what statehood might look like in the city and what it will how it will function. What are all of the offices that will be added? What are things that will be removed? And then for the federal land that's still um, you know that that's litter that we've been discussing, there will be some com- some conversation around the Twenty Third Amendment. If and when and how that might shape out, you know, pending the House and the Senate voting on it. And so I don't think that that's a question that I can answer 
with you know very mm-hmm. specific you know certainty. But what I can say is there are people who are actively studying this. Um, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton um, suggested that statehood you know be enacted over 30 years ago. And so I would hope that they have 30 years worth of planning <laughs> and can figure out um, what this process might look like as we move forward. Yeah, you would you would you would definitely hope uh, if it if it does happen. They get, they abolish the filibuster. They move this through. How quickly uh, does this go into effect? You know, do I wake up one morning in the District of Columbia and then the next the next day it's it's a state? It, you know, when do senators get sworn in? When does uh, when do we have a governor? When do we have you know a member of uh, a voting member of Congress? Yeah, so what the the legislation has proposed is a transition transition committee giving the mayor of the District of Columbia right now, who's Muriel E. Bowser, um, jurisdiction to appoint um, sitting Congress people to appoint um, um, senators. And if I'm not mistaken, a vote would have to be taken by the over 700,000 residents Mm -hmm. here in the District of Columbia. So the short answer is we would not wake up and the next day we have all the functionality as a state. There will be a transition committee that would literally phase in processes mm-hmm. as proposed by the legislation. And then at some point that information would be relayed to the District of Columbia residents. And then we would begin the process of building a government, building a new okay. a new state-based government. Right, and I, I, I expect, and I'm curious for you, I bet the referendum would get uh, Saddam Hussein level support. You know, when he used to run for president, remember, he would get 98% or something if he would run for president. I, I would think DC statehood would have over 90, 90% support in, the, in a city referendum. What, what's, your, what's your read on if the rubber really hit the road on, on statehood, how many residents would vote for it? Well, right now it 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 enjoys eighty six percent approval rating. That's really really high. Um, I think D.C. residents are tired of being taxed um, at you know a higher rate than twenty two states in this nation. Um, as a District of Columbia resident, I pay more federal taxes than 22 other states. We are larger than the state of Wyoming. Um, We've seen states like the Dakotas before there was a South Dakota and a North Dakota, it was just a Dakota. We've seen them split. And so we're saying, when is our turn to become a state? When is it our turn to have true representation in Congress? When is it our turn that our Congressperson Eleanor Holmes Norton gets a vote? And so I don't think that you'll find too many district residents who are in disagreement that we should become a state. Right, and the argument that uh, that it's all political and that Democrats just won a couple of uh, senators is a irrelevant to the question of the justice of the situation, but b every state more or less that was admitted over the last you know 150 years was admitted as part of some political process. That you mentioned the Dakotas, they were split up. So that Republicans could squeeze four senators out of you know the the that that chunk of land out there, rather than just two senators. We have to go pretty quickly, but as a D.C. resident, I did want to get your take while I've got you here on the the fencing around the Capitol. Eleanor Holmes Norton, as you as you know, has been pushing to have this come down. She's been pushing mm-hmm. no funding for a, a permanent fence. Uh, what what's your take on what ought to be done about this the fence around the Capitol? 
Well, I think that that's a great question. I think post the January 6th insurrection, I have been a resident who said I would like the fencing to come down because it feels like we are a city in bondage. We are a city under military surveillance and in war. And that's just not how people should live. But I think considering what happened this past Friday with you know the young man who ran through security protocols, I believe that the Capitol Police need to reassess what is truly needed. They need to do more with recruiting. They need to do more with understanding how people can become a threat and really iron out what their protocol measures will be moving forward. Well, Crystal Knight, thank you so much for joining us on the conversation. Thank you for having me, I'd love to come back. Anytime. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are joined this evening by the American Prospects Alex Salmon to talk about the history of Amazon and a new book that is out by Alec McGillis called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. Alex, welcome to the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Alex's book is Sort of about Amazon, sort of about America, sort of about both. First of all, tell us what what did you what did you think of the book? If if this were Amazon, how many stars you giving it? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's an incredible book in the sense that it it gives kind of the most thorough overview of of what what Amazon is in 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 this moment. And that's something that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. And it's changed really rapidly. Um, and so the, the book looks at Amazon as as you know an e-commerce giant, as a retail giant, but also as all the other things that it is, which is now an entertainment giant, a grocery store, it's a it's a data services company, it's a logistics company, it's it's uh it's so many things and it and it does them at such an astonishing scale. And that, you know, that makes it a company that basically is peerless in these in this economy and 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 it has you know unique influence to to reshape the the lives of Americans all over the all over the country. And and the book does a does a really, you know, I think a very impressive job of 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 examining what what that means for people in Seattle, what that means for people in Columbus, Ohio, and what that means for you know all of us as either people who use Amazon or or, or see the trucks driving down the street or or watch Amazon Prime or whatever it is. Right, and the book and one of Alex's you know great strengths as as a journalist is is sketching characters and and you know bringing you into scenes and and showing you what you know people's. Lives are like, and he and he runs through a number of of different people whose lives were influenced by Amazon one way or another. He also talks about Bezos and who and where Bezos came from. So start with him. Let's tell tell people a little bit about Jeff Bezos. Everybody knows, you know, he's the he's the he's the bald headed smiling guy that's in the pictures of every article about him. But what what is he like, and you know, why did he start Amazon? Yeah, it's interesting because you know, for for America, for the title of America's richest man, we don't really know that much about Jeff right. Bezos, and there hasn't been that much put into mythologizing him as a as a character. You know, you don't hear there aren't people on the internet who say that Jeff Bezos is this great genius, this kind of unique intellectual mm-hmm. figure. You know, he's not this super passionate guy who you know cares you know so uniquely about logistics above all else. Um, and so the kind of portrait of Bezos that we get in this book, which I think is you know is very accurate and very unsparing, is uh, someone who has a background in finance, 
who who saw an opportunity to to make a lot of money off of the internet, and uh, and then basically made a series of decisions uh, to put together a company that that would realize that aim. And so you 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 kind of see him moving to Seattle uh, and choosing to sell books. He he moves into this house in Seattle that has a garage, and he picks that house because he wants to be able to say that he started Amazon in a garage. Uh, and you know, he picks Seattle because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want his uh, his California consumers to have to pay sales tax, so he has a competitive advantage over in-state retailers there. And and so the whole thing is very calculating, and he, and he ends up kind of sketching together this company that's based basically basically on arbitraging the American tax mm-hmm. code, and it has nothing you know little to do with a love of books, which obviously is where it starts out. It has nothing to do with uh, you know this real belief in in some sort of utopian vision of of what the internet could bring. Uh, he's just a guy who has a finance background who knows how to how to how to hit the loopholes in 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 the American uh, economic system, and and he does that basically on a level we haven't seen before. All right, and nobody who has a love of books would really set out to, to destroy bookstores. I would, I would, I wouldn't think you would. You wouldn't set that as as one of your, as one of your life's goals. And you you talked about the the sales tax or arbitrage that he that he pulled off. He also you know pulled off this kind of cash flow arbitrage, which you know which as a Wall Street guy, you know he knows that one of the basic formulas in on in capitalism is that money today is worth a tiny bit more than money tomorrow. You know that's. That's where that's where interest comes from, and so if you can manipulate your cash flow so that you're sitting on cash that is actually somebody else's, whether it's your workers' cash or it's your uh, you know it's it's uh, a supplier's cash, uh, the longer you can sit on that, you can make a little tiny bit of money off of that for doing nothing, and if you rack up enough of that, then you can eventually. Turn a profit, you know, effectively doing nothing, just just moving things around. Um, so and so, so Alec does a great job telling that side of the story. But like I said, he also gets into the some of the regular people, and 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 talks about geographical and regional inequality in a, in a way that is absent from our national conversation. You know, we talk a lot about inequality within. Cities and inequality within within the country, but he talks about how you know entire regions are going one direction, while entire other regions, mostly on the coast, but not everywhere on the coast, on the coast are are going a, a different direction. Can you sketch out a little bit of the the portrait that that Alec paints of of this kind of Amazon America that is beset by regional inequality. Yeah, sure. It's it's kind of the you know the, the winner take all mentality that we've seen kind of predominate the economy broadly, and I think you know it speaks to this moment of of gross inequality in the United States is true also of, of America's cities. And so uh, the, the point that the contention that Alex make Alec makes in this book, which I think is is very apt, is that you know you have a handful of cities. Uh, that have reaped almost all the rewards of, of the economy over the last 20 or 30 years. And much of that you know, is, is embodied in Amazon because it's so large. And then you have these kind of other mid-sized cities that, that once did quite well in the United States. That there were, you know, there were places like Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. these kind of mid-sized cities where there were blue collar jobs, it paid reasonable wages, people could you know, own a home. There was a, there was a standard of living that was on offer in, in cities that weren't the, the big six or the big eight American coastal cities. Uh, and and you know in in the story of Amazon, you can also see both the rise of places like Seattle and Washington D.C. is another one that gets a lot of uh, attention in the book. Mm-hmm. 
that have really grown in the last handful of years, and that's you know, rents are skyrocketing. It's 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 you know manifests in a number of ways. But then you also have these other places like Columbus, like El Paso, like uh, these kind of mid-sized American cities where um, you just basically the, the industry is hollowed out, and 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 it's not even so much that the bottom drops out, but more the middle drops out, and you have mm-hmm. jobs that once paid reasonable wages. Uh, are are just gobbled up or forced to compete with Amazon to to the degree that it drops down to to near rock bottom and um and that's you know that you know that is expressed in in the rise of Trump you know there are so many of all of, of these things that this speaks to in this political moment but mm-hmm. uh, the book does a really really sharp job of, of kind of yeah sketching out the 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 geographical nature of this drama and and kind of how it's unfolded over over decades. And what what role did Amazon play in bringing that about? And what role did Amazon play in just exploiting? All, you know, were, were they are they vultures eating off the carcass, or or are they the coyotes that that killed it? It's uh, it, it's certainly a bit of both. Um, I think I think it's it's there's a temptation to say you know Amazon caused this, um, and I don't think that's totally accurate. Um, I you know I think a lot of you know the collapse of union density. Uh, you know, trade policy, industrial policy. We've seen a lot of things that have basically set a lot of these trends in motion before Amazon showed up. And and Amazon, in a lot of ways, just you know did did what Walmart did and followed in the footsteps of of Walmart, which is another obviously you know a giant retailer with massive mm-hmm. uh, massive influence. But there are also ways in which Amazon has kind of broken new ground on this trend, and 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 you see that even in in its uh, its lobbying force. And that's another kind of thing that the book focuses on. I think very smartly is that. The amount of money Amazon has dedicated towards lobbying just in the last couple of years has really exploded, and and that's kind of where we're seeing the company not just you know picking on on the carcass, but but also now you know now it's also a predator and it, and it's taking down these you know these companies and, and and these cities and these areas and 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 you know rewriting the laws to allow it to do so, and and that's I think in this moment now we have it doing both, and that that seems like an inflection point in a lot of ways. And meanwhile, they engaged and related to that, they engaged in this deeply cruel pageant, you know, where they had American cities across the country kind of dress up and and you know show off to Amazon and and you know promise different sweeteners to if they would put you know their headquarters in you know in in their town. So you had all of these cities across the country thinking like. Okay, maybe our nightmare could finally be ended, even if Amazon is causing some of this. At least if we could get one of the headquarters positioned in our city, then we can, you know, we can finally get our renaissance. But all along, they were going to New York and Washington D.C. Do you think that that was ever in doubt? I I don't think so. And and there's this great quote in in the book from. From an early Amazon investor named Nick Hanauer, um, and and he said, you know, to the idea that, that Amazon might pick a place like Jacksonville or some sort of mid-sized American city that you know that is hurting and and you know dedicate resources, kind of turning that around. Um, he said, I guess I, can, I guess I can't swear on the air, so I, I can't say the full quote, but <laughs> uh, just just the, just I'll I'll paraphrase that that Jeff Jeff Bezos is a straight up libertarian that the kind of writing a social wrong was no part of this calculus. Um, and uh, maybe to a unique degree, uh, he has no interest in that. And and I think that you know it it's looking back at that pageant, it's 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 cynical and and, and sad and and, uh, and extremely discouraging to to see you know these 
municipal governments just you know uh, basically bowing before this corporation and then, and then you know despite offering these incredible tax credits and and uh, this that the other thing still not having never having a real chance to to kind of partake of the spoils. Right. Well, the one solace we can take is that Amazon, at least, is being is so far is being forced to sell this book and has not pulled it from its from its virtual shelves. I checked, and you can actually find it on Amazon. I don't encourage people to buy it necessarily from there, but you can find it there. And that's a, that's a little bit of insult to add to all the injury they've done across the country. But Alex Salmon, thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. Great piece. Everybody, check it out at the American Prospect. Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan.